Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. On behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the Board of Trustees and Directors, and the staff of the Pratt Library, we thank you for attending the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Lecture Series. This evening, we have a remarkable guest speaker who is one of the leading urban ethnographers in the United States. Dr. Elijah Anderson is the William K. Landman Jr. Professor of Sociology at Yale University. Dr. Elijah Anderson, prior to holding his prestigious position at Yale, was Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, and he had a second appointment in the Wharton School. He has served on various faculties of several prestigious colleges and universities. His resume is quite impressive as I was reading it, and I can't give you the whole litany of all that is included in his resume, so I'll give you a, just a quick short bio. He has written numerous books, book chapters, articles, and scholar reports on race in American cities. In addition, he has received numerous awards for his distinguished teaching and lectures. Moreover, he has served on many renowned boards, and he has served as a consultant to a variety of government agencies, including the White House, the United States Congress, the National Academy of Science, and the National Science Foundation. His list of achievements and accomplishments are vast, and this evening, Dr. Anderson will discuss his latest book, The Cosmopolitan Canopy, Race and Civility in Everyday Life, which, proves to, which provides a rich narrative account of how blacks and whites relate and redefine the color line in everyday public life. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Elijah Anderson, one of the busiest sociologists on the planet. Well, good evening. Good evening, everybody. It's so good to be here on this hot day. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very impressed to see so many of you here on this hot day. I'm glad to see you, but I'm glad to see you all here. And I want to I want to talk about my work. I want to I want to talk about um, uh, ethnography and 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 what ethnography is, but also what it is that an ethnographer does. Right? And um, uh, I am an ethnographer. What that means is that I study people up close, people up close. I observe, I watch, talk to people, and then I try to represent what I've seen in my books. I try to paint a picture and interpret and, 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 and define to some extent uh, What's going on? Kind of like right back at you, so to speak. Now, the definition of ethnography is the systematic study of culture. Now, culture can be defined as a set of shared understandings and 
it's about how people go about meeting the demands of everyday life. And as they meet these everyday demands of everyday life, they come to understand themselves and that wider society, you see. And they pass on anything of value to people they care about. So what we're talking about is a way of life. And these people, as they go about dealing with life and coming to this understanding about how to kind of get things done, as I indicate, they develop a a local knowledge, a local knowledge. I spent many years on the streets just looking at people up close, and the brothers on the corner, they call it street knowledge, so to speak. But local knowledge, and everybody is developing this local knowledge, what they understand about this circumstance, what they understand about how to get things done, what they understand about life, myths, rituals, understandings. Now, the ethnographer is a person who tries to get at that local knowledge, to get at that local knowledge, to apprehend it, to comprehend it, to understand it, and then to represent it, to render it. As I said, to paint this picture so that people who've never been there who've never been there, never walked in this person's shoes, can then begin to get an understanding of what this person is dealing with or what these people are dealing with every day, if you understand what I'm saying. And that's what I spent my life doing. Now, when you do ethnography, of course, your own personal background gets into it your own story, what you come to understand about the world, what you're dealing with, and the kinds of baggage that you might carry as a person. And ideally, you try to uh, problematize that and see where the weaknesses are and throw those out and try to transcend those hang-ups or that baggage Again, to get at the truth as you see it, at least hopefully you begin to ask insightful questions that can further the discussion among honest uh, people, honest observers, if you follow what I'm saying. That's what I've tried to do. Now, I was born in the, um, the Delta uh, back during the war, the Great War. And my, my grandmama was the midwife when I was born. And in this little village town, she was a, a, a village doctor, you know. I mean, not an educated doctor, but a, you know, she had all kinds of herbical cures and things like that. She, she knew what roots to get and how to cook them and how to do this and how to make this and that. She delivered babies. And when people got sick, they, they, they'd come to her. And she delivered a lot of babies. And in those days, a lot of black folks wouldn't go to the hospital, couldn't go to the hospital 
and sometimes were scared of going to the hospital because when they went to the hospital, they oftentimes died because whatever was ailing them had gone on too long. And so people began to develop ideas about the hospital, so to speak. I mean, not to mention the fact that in the South, we're talking about two different systems of living, utter segregation, a caste system, if you follow me. Blacks on one side, whites on the other. And you know who's on the top, you see. So that's the situation that my grandmama came up and sharecropping was a big thing. Well, I was born in that situation in a very, very poor community. It was dirt poor. Uh, roads, dusty dirt roads would lead to my house. I went back down there last uh, summer and I started to go back to my, my birth town and I said, well, I can't, the GPS won't work. <laughs> so I better wait, I better wait, you know. So I got one of my cousins to take me around there once I got to the town they lived in. But anyway, um, I was born there. And my daddy, he went uh, to the war. He fought in uh, England and went all about. He drove trucks. Like, See, they had a lot of the black soldiers driving trucks in those days. That was a pretty dangerous job, but the black soldiers oftentimes did these very dangerous jobs. And then when, I mean, I don't know if you saw Saving Private Ryan, uh, Spielberg, but you don't see any black soldiers in there, you know. And I know my daddy was there because he said he was there, you know. He said, <laughs> but you just, you just did, you just don't see black soldiers represented in so many of these World War II movies. But these folks died. They, 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 they did honorable things. They, you know, I won't go into all that. This is not about that. But my daddy, he, um, he was surprised by the way the British people respected him. The way they would give up their seats on buses and things, respecting the American uniform. He'd never been treated that way in his life. He told me one day, he said, I almost didn't come back. <laughs> you know, I said, well, I'm glad you did, Daddy, you know. He came back and, you know, but he couldn't live in the South anymore. Like so many black men of his generation, strong black men, couldn't, couldn't live with all this segregation and second-class citizenship and everything after fighting in the war the way they did. And so he went north, took the family with him. We went to my uncle's house and stayed there for a while, then got our own place and on and on. I was only two, three, you know, at the time. And uh, South Bend, Indiana was, was, was where we landed, which is about 90 miles east of Chicago. And my daddy, he got a job in the factory at Studebaker's. You know, he had a fourth grade education. My mama, she had an 11th grade education. And she cleaned houses and all, did housework for white folks. And basically tried to raise a family of five children and I was in the center, I was a middle child. And uh, growing up, I just loved uh, the streets. I loved being out and about, and I won't get into all that, but, but at one point I decided 
that I needed to, to go to school. And I did some kind of big flip and just became very studious, about the 11th grade or 12th grade or something. And truth is, I had all these friends who were like grown men, you know, they were in my school, but I mean, they were powerfully built boys who got all kinds of scholarships and basketball, football, whatever it was. And, and I wasn't that big and powerful. I mean, I was about 140 pounds soaking wet. And these boys were getting scholarships and going to college. And I looked at myself and said, where am I going to be in five years? And I said, I, I was just looking at myself and looking at them. And I wanted to be where they were. But I couldn't play basketball. I couldn't. I did all right, you know. <clears throat> couldn't run track. I mean, I did all right, I guess. I mean, but I was slow. I mean, these boys would run a hundred yard dash and ten flat, like nobody's business, you know. The best I could do was eleven two, no matter how hard I tried, which was slow. And these boys, one hundred eighty five pounds, a high school halfback, running a hundred yard dash and ten flat. I mean, you know, that's pretty fast to be that big and muscular, you know? So these boys had all kinds of scholarships, and they were just natural athletes, some of them. So trying to follow them, I hit the books very, very hard. I mean, incredibly hard, and began to like it. Make a long story short, I went to Indiana University in Bloomington and uh, graduated in 1969, and then went on to the University of Chicago and that was at a time when, you know, the, um, the cities were burning. The civil rights movement was in its heyday. And the society, if you could look at the society in that day and time, it was highly, highly segregated. It still is, but it isn't, it isn't the way it used to be, if you know what I mean. And so these the civil rights movement culminated in these riots all over this country, beginning in Watts, California, and going across the country from Springfield, Illinois, to Chicago, to Detroit, to, to uh, uh, Youngstown, Ohio, to Cleveland, to Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Detroit, all these cities had serious riots. And so the system decided, at least the people who ran the system at that time, decided to, to do something to cool this out. They had a big problem on their hands. And what they did was work to incorporate black people into the system, you see, to bring black people into the system. And I was a part of that. I was a part of that. As I graduated, I had all kinds of fellowship offers to go to, to, go to school as, when I graduated from college. And I decided to go to the University of Chicago and went on and on and on. It's like a fire was lit up under me. My first study was a study of black street corner men. I mean, 
I read this book by Elliot Lebo called um, Tally's Corner. And this was a study about Washington, D.C., about black men on the corner. And I said to my teacher, he got a PhD for this? And he said, he said yeah, but I said, I could do that. <laughs> and next thing I knew, he, this man had written a strong letter for me to go to the University of Chicago. And I went there. And the first thing I did was find me a street corner and got deep into it and learned all about this street corner and wrote this book a place on the corner, which became a classic in the field. Uh, it's still used today, my PhD dissertation, a place on the corner. And I was concerned then that the analyses, the, the representations that so many scholars were making about the black community were, were lacking, were lacking. And it was just from that point I began to look at it seriously from my perspective, if you know what I mean, all that I could bring to it. Again, the ethnographer, to some extent, is dealing with his own story as it relates to the people that he is or she is trying to understand, if you, might, if you understand what I'm saying. And that's what I did. And the book became a classic. You can buy it, Place on the Corner. It's a very vivid description of the street corner of that day and time. Looks at how these men on the corner, whom I got to know real well, they reminded me of my daddy and my uncles and people like that. And I got to know them real well and I wrote about their lives, humanized them, made a lot of people kind of understand them, hopefully for the first time and understand the complexity of the Kona. And as I completed that, I had offers from schools all over the country. I had offers from, uh, from Yale, from, um, well, interviews to all these places like Yale and uh, 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 Stanford and University of Chicago and uh, Notre Dame, a lot of different places. Uh, extended invitations for me to visit their schools and look them over, so to speak. It was an amazing time. Swarthmore College came to me and made me a wonderful offer, and I accepted it. And went to Swarthmore College, and I taught there and finished up my dissertation which was published by the University of Chicago Press. And I was at Swarthmore College for two years, and you can imagine how different Swarthmore College was from my background. And the people I met there were so different from people I knew, if you know what I mean. But I maintained, I was able to deal with it, and I didn't go crazy, and first thing I knew, Penn made me an offer. And so I went down to Penn. And then I began to do another study that wound up to be streetwise. Again, looking at the city in a, in a, from a peculiar perspective, from the perspective that I knew, what I understood. And that book, too, is available, streetwise. It's considered a classic in the field.
And then I turned my attention to why so many of these kids were hurting each other in cities. And I began to look very closely at the issue of violence and look at the context in which it went on. And I talked to people, listened to people, visited crack houses, went up and down the street and, and dealt with so much that then I wrote about. My third book was called Code of the Street. Code of the Street. Before the wire, you know. <laughs> the problem I had with the wire, the wire is an interesting program and I, I just get so uh, frustrated with it sometimes because it's so entertaining and so dramatic and the characters are so good looking and so articulate and all that, you know. But the thing that I feel about the wires is that they always leave one thing out, the decent people. And being out there in the field the way I'm in the field, talking to people, listening to people, hanging out with people, I know that even in the poorest communities, most of the people, from what I can see, are decent and trying to be decent. I mean, not all of them succeed, but, but most of them are decent and trying to be decent. But you don't see any of that. Like Mr. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson. You don't see them in the wire. You see a lot of thugs. Not to say the thugs not out there. But if the decent people were not there, it would be complete chaos. Complete chaos, believe me. And yet, a lot of folks say, oh, that's the best thing on TV. Well, they don't know the black community. And a lot of blacks have a lot of trouble with The Wire, in part because it isn't as authentic as white people oftentimes believe it is. Which brings me to the problems that I wrote about in this current book to some extent. Anyway, Code of the Street. Check it out. The decent people are well represented, but the decent people are under pressure, as I, as I write about it in the book. And almost have to act street in order to get along, I mean, in the community, if you know what I mean. It's a subtle analysis. And I like to think it's powerful. The Department of Justice did a big study, a follow-up, and they corroborated quantitatively so much of what I found out qualitatively. So much of what I wrote about from observation, they found out statistically. And now they've begun to use it to try to understand what's going on and to deal with a lot of this uh, stuff that's going on out here right now today with this added element of understanding, if you know what I mean. So I feel very proud of that. Well. For this book, The Cosmopolitan Canopy, Race and Civility in Everyday Life, what happened was my wife, um, we're living on the edge of the hood near Penn, and I was very, very comfortable uh, in that situation. And all this violence was going on all around, and neighbors getting mugged and this kind of thing and and she kept worrying me about oh we gotta move we gotta move and so and finally uh, 
neighbor across the street, he was put on the ground and gun put to his head. And uh, they took $5 from him and he came home. He was a white guy, you know. And uh, he was an uh, anchor for the New Jersey Network News. Six feet four, big guy. They put him on the ground, put a gun to his head and demanded money, got $5. He got home. He told his wife, it's time to go. And um, my son, who was about 12 at the time, he kept asking me, Daddy, did they do that to Larry? Did they do that to Larry? I said, yeah, they did to Larry. And he had been so free and easy before. I mean, going to the barber shop, which was two blocks away, and by himself and all that. One day he said, Mama, can you walk me to the to the barber shop? <laughs> I knew then that I had to reconsider, and we began to really think about it, and we did leave that particular community, but I hated to do that because I had a beautiful old house, I mean, three stories high, 16 feet ceilings, uh, two fireplaces, postage stamp backyard. I was, I, was, I was loving my community, you know, and short, block to, short walk to work, I mean, eight, eight, eight blocks, you know. I don't want to leave, but, you know, but I, I want to stay married, so. So we, so we move, we move downtown. We got this uh, apartment on Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia there. And if you know Philadelphia at all, Rittenhouse Square is this, this beautiful block in the center of the city. And basically, it used to be kind of a, the rich area of downtown. Apartments. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it has a lot of good things going on. And we moved into an apartment on the 20th floor, one of these buildings there, overlooking the square. And I dare say that uh, there were no other blacks in the building. And so you can imagine what it meant for me going up and down the stairs, the elevators. I mean, getting on the elevator, going up the elevator, and the ladies with the blue hair, they'd look at me, and I'd get off on their floor. And so uh, once they got used to me, it got to be okay, if you know what I mean. But at first, it was just interesting, if you follow what I'm saying. And um, I got very interested not only in, see, as an ethnographer, you begin to write about what you see, what you know. And I began to get interested in that setting. I began to spend time on the square. I began to videotape and photograph and talk to the homeless folks and talk to all kind of people up in that situation and observe. I would hang out with the doormen, the black doormen of various buildings. I'd spend time with them. My wife and I, we would go out to one of these restaurants for a nice meal, but after the meal, I'd send her upstairs and I'd stay down and hang out with the doormen and just, just talk with them and see what was on their minds, and how they saw the situation, how they saw this, saw that. All the time I'm observing and writing field notes and trying to figure out what's going on on the square. You see, that's how an ethnographer works, you see. And lo and behold, I began to make sense. I began to see that life on the square there is so strange in a certain way. You walk up under this canopy on the square there. It's almost like something magical. All these different kinds of people 
in the square there. All different races, genders, ethnicities, sexual preference, whatever it is. Homeless people, well-to-do people. And somehow, they're all kind of getting along. There's no real tension. It's like once you come under this canopy, it's like you kind of eavesdrop on people. You can observe people. You can throw frisbees. You can play with your dog. You can sunbathe. You can play your guitar, you know? I mean, it was just a lovely scene. But outside of the canopy was something else. Because Philadelphia, it's the ninth most segregated town in the country, you see. And when people come downtown and come to the, this canopy, you can't always tell, you see, that it's so segregated. People are getting along. There's something magical going on down there. Now, to qualify that, you have to understand that a lot of us, we come into these situations, would be on downtown behavior, and that is we get into civility and that kind of, a lot of this is gloss. A lot of this is superficial. But it has its place, because without that gloss, you can imagine people being more, um, or maybe less polite, or whatever it is. But under the canopy, people are really getting along, at least superficially. And this is important. And I began to understand that, you see. And my wife and I, we used to make our trek over to the Reading Terminal, which is another space like this. Only it's, it's a marketplace downtown. Again, with all different kinds of people. Been there for 100 years. All different kinds of people, all different kinds of food. You got soul food, you got, you got um, uh, country food, you got uh, 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 Asian food, you got, um, you got uh, uh, sushi, you, know, you got all kinds of things, and all kinds of people are there getting along. So I began to conceptualize this, and I began to think about the canopy the canopy, this diverse place, this diverse space where all different kinds of people come together and it's nobody's place but everybody's place. And they're all getting along, you see. It's time out, time out from all this other stuff that's going on. And a lot of these people come from segregated situations. They come from the suburbs, you know. They come from the Italian community. They come from the, the Jewish community. They come from the black community. You know, when they come into the space, it's like a different situation. It's a different time. And so they get along. And I've interviewed people and observed people and talked real tough to people about this situation, you see. And I've come up with this concept of the cosmopolitan canopy. It's a beautiful space. You see. I also come up with the terms cosmopolitan person, ethnocentric 
person. In the book, I call these cosmos and ethnos. Cosmo people reach out to all different kind of people. The big thing they look for is the humanity of the next person. Ethnocentrics are much more easily threatened, more particular, you know, even parochial and proud of it. Quite suspicious of people who are different from them, who are strange to them. And they can be of any race, cosmos and ethnos, you see. Ethnocentric, cosmopolitan, cosmo, ethno. And I would dare say that all of us, it's not, it's not either or, because all of us, I think, have some cosmo in us, you know, especially given what we've been through with the civil rights movement, the racial incorporation process, the, the, the celebration of diversity, all these kinds of things, you see. All of us know what it means to be cosmopolitan. And all of us, I believe, have some cosmo in us. But all of us have some ethno in us too, you see. Ethno-cosmo in the same body. So these two pieces become at war with each other, you see, a little bit, you see. But the canopy, the canopy encourages all of us to express our cosmosides and to leave and to keep this ethno piece in check, if you know what I mean. You come downtown, you come to the canopy, you act real nice to everybody. You, 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 you behave in a very cosmo way, so to speak. Back in the neighborhoods, it may be more ethno. You see, you get the picture. And so I looked, I looked at this and I studied this and tried to think about try to criticize, try to critique it, try to deny it. That's what you do when you're a good ethnographer. You have an idea, you try to knock it down. What's wrong with this picture, you see? But no matter how I tried, it persisted. The cosmopolitan canopy, this place where in the city people at least come together and act real nice, act real nice. They may not be nice, but they act real nice. I mean, some of us are hardwired to be Cosmo. I mean, we're comfortable economically, we're educated, we're sophisticated, quote unquote, you know. Uh, we're comfortable, we're not as easily threatened. Maybe born with a silver spoon in our mouths, you know. So we can afford to reach out to different kinds of people, feel affirmed by different kinds of people, if you know what I mean. And some of us are born maybe in poverty and we're looking all around for the demons and people looking at us, coming at us, and we want to fend this person, fend that person off. So we may be more particularistic, you see. You see, all of us got some of that in us, I guess. And so you can imagine when the cosmos come to the canopy, I mean, it's not much work. At least behave. When the ethnos come to the canopy of any race, they got to work to be Cosmo. They got to work at it, you see. They got to work at it. And it's important that the ethnos, when they come to the canopy, give them the norms, that they're working. It's important because some of that kind of sticks. Now, they get weary 
because it is hard work to be that way for some people. And sometimes, no matter how hard they try, the ethno comes out, you see. Especially if they find some other ethnos who validate them. And pretty soon they develop projects on other people, if you know what I mean. People with provisional status. People who are marginal. People who have something to prove. They come together and kind of get on them and mess with them and create tension for them and sometimes express acute disrespect based on the particularity of this person, if you know what I mean. Could be a gay person, could be a woman, could be an Italian, could be a Jew, could be an Asian, could be a black person, you see. You get it? Cosmo, ethno. And so I began to make sense in trying to analyze this and kind of bring it home. And you can imagine that one of the fault lines of the canopy is this show of acute disrespect based on particularity, you know. Now, black people, because of this long history of racial injury in this country, can feel this acutely, even have antennae that go up and look out for this acute disrespect based on blackness, you see. It can happen to anybody. But it happens to blacks a lot. And so they've been conditioned to look for it. You see. This is one of the fault lines of the canopy. And it's very powerful when it happens. When it happens, it's very, very powerful. It can mess up your day. Mess up your week. Mess up your year. Mess up your administration. <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, black people joke about this sometimes, even after the fact, but when it's happening, it's no joke. Acute disrespect based on blackness. This is the new color line. This is what I discovered in this book. This is the new color line. In the old days when people like W.B. Du Bois wrote about Philadelphia, this color line was supported in law in the South and in the North. Caden and Drake wrote Black Metropolis. Read these books. Same thing. Up until the Civil Rights Movement and the various legislation that occurred, it wasn't until then that black people became full citizens under the law. You see? can move anywhere you want to move, can be guaranteed that people won't discriminate against you because of who you are in the workplace. Even that guarantee is not a guarantee, but it's, it's illegal now. Time was, it was not illegal. What happened all the time. And black people knew how to kind of get around it, 
although they didn't always find themselves employed, but they avoided that line, dealt with that line. Today is a new day. The color line is not as sharp, not as clear in this day and age. You see? The color line can be drawn any minute. You see, it can be drawn any minute, like a boat out of the blue. You see? It can be drawn any minute. You see? And when it's drawn, it is traumatic. And that is important because it's, that says a lot right there, you see. Now, black people oftentimes joke about this after the fact. They call it the nigger moment. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'm just trying to say what I've seen and what I've learned from just talking to people and observing and caring about trying to get this understanding. I'm not fooling around. I'm trying to understand it, you see. Because I feel that if I can understand it, write about it, maybe we all can learn something and get ahead, move ahead, you see. I don't bite my tongue. I tell it like I see it. And that's what is in this book. But black people joke about it. They call it the nigger moment. But it's no joke when it's happening. And I began to look at all these places all around Philadelphia. I mean, I'm talking about serious work. I mean, I'm uh, on weekends. I'm in the restaurants, you know. You know, I walk in the restaurants. I leave my wife and kids in the car. Let me go in the restaurant here. Check things out, you know. I go right back to the kitchen and talk to people, you know. Make a few notes, you know. Come out, hit another restaurant. Who's here? Who's sitting down? Who's eating? Who's not? Lily White restaurant. Who's working? Who's not? Staff, all white. <laughs> yeah. Make a little note, you know. I'm serious. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm not playing. I'm trying to figure it out and trying to question myself to see if I'm right and question my friends and question other people. Am I right or wrong about this? Let's argue about it. Tell me where I'm wrong. And again and again and again, these ideas, they, they persist. I've challenged them. I've done the field work. I said, well, this have another test. Let me go into the workplace. Let me go into the workplace. So I, I, uh, I, after studying all these places outside, I said, let me check out this corporation. So I called up the vice president for, uh, for um, human relations. And I say, look, um, this is Professor Anderson. In my best white voice, I tried to, tried to, tried to say, "Look, I'd like to do a study of your workplace, and could you let me in?" And blah 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 blah. The guy said, "Well, why don't you come down? And let's talk about it." So I donned this uh, pinstripe suit, you know, and uh, cut my mustache, and I was excited. I go down, and I go to the 30th floor of this building right down Center City, Philadelphia. I walk in, the receptionist right there, and I said, I want to see Mr. Roberts. And uh, she sits me down, and about five minutes later, he comes out. He's a black man. <laughs> I thought he was white. Because <laughs> he had his white voice on, too, you know, so. 
So, so we look at each other, you know. And we don't laugh, we just look at each other, you know. So he says, come on back, and we begin to talk, and he says, or he says uh, he's a very sharply dressed guy, handsome guy, and all, well-dressed, you know. Uh, yeah, he said, so what do you teach at Penn, you know? I said, well, uh, I teach a course in deviant behavior, you know. <laughs> he looks at me and begins to crack up. And I crack up, and pretty soon we laugh together because, you know, we're both deviants of a sort. I mean, you know, I mean, he's in this big corporation, and, uh, I mean, dominated by white people, and I'm at this university dominated by white people, so we, we're both deviant in a sense, if you know what I mean. We're successful in a sense, but we're, we're both deviant, and we just laugh about that. We became good friends. And he gave me the complete run of the place. He gave me an office, a glass-enclosed office, and people filed by, you know, and I interviewed them, talked to them, got to know them, went to the parties, went to lunch with them, went to a happy hour, you know, and, and interviewed them carefully about just what it was they were dealing with every day. And these were black executives, these were white executives, Jewish executives, Asian executives, you know, I was really concerned about the racial situation, and so I just talked to him very carefully and tried to understand. And that's in the book, too. All that's in the book. And from that point on in the book, he began to kind of get into all these issues uh, that distinguish the workplace as a canopy from what you see outside. Now, you must understand that the workplace is quite different from the stuff out going on outside because there's much more at stake. People get hired. People get fired. People get promoted. You understand? And so it was, it's a different situation, you know. Canopy, too, nonetheless. I mean, when you go to work, you meet all kinds of people today because... By law, I mean, these places can't just be homogeneous white the way they used to be. So you might see Africans, you might see an Asian fellow, you might see uh, black people, you might see all kind of people working in this situation. It's a, it's a different day, you see. But the question is, what's going on underneath all this, you see? How are people truly getting along in this workspace. Do people go to lunches with each other? Do they talk to each other real nice at work? What happens at 5 o'clock? Do they go to each other's homes? I got deep into all this with people, if you, if you see. And I try to make sense of it in the book. You know? And I began to see that a lot of what was going on here was just really just powerful. The canopy is the canopy, but there are fault lines. There's serious fault lines. Let me read you a little uh, vignette from the book. It brings a lot of this home. 
And this isn't, this isn't the workplace per se, but it is a, a, a kind of a canopy, you see, that has implications for the workplace. Now, Sean was one of a handful of black students attending a prestigious school in Washington, D.C. He came from Minnesota, Philadelphia, but was able to attend an elite private high school on scholarship where he did very well and went on to graduate from college. Accustomed to associating freely with peers from diverse backgrounds, he aspired to become a lawyer and won admission to an institution in the nation's capital. He and a few other black law students were only non-white residents of the adjacent affluent neighborhood. One evening after classes, Sean was waiting for the bus to go home. His apartment was only a 10-minute walk away, but he stopped by the store and had groceries as well as books to carry. He decided to take a bus that stopped just across the street from the law school and talking to his girlfriend on the, on the phone while he waited, Sean noticed a police car drive slowly by and then it drove by again and circled a third time. And on the fourth pass, the officer pulled up behind him and sat for approximately three minutes with the car's footlight shining on the bus stall in which Sean sat. And Sean was startled to hear the officer's voice on the loudspeaker order him to put his hands out where they could be seen and to turn slowly toward the light. Sean did so. With his phone still in his hand, as he turned toward the officer who had stepped out of his cruiser, he saw that the cop was reaching for his host and drawing his gun. Another law student, a white female, whom Sean did not know, but who had also been waiting for the bus, yelled out to the officer that Sean had in his hand was only a cell phone. The officer yelled for Sean to drop it, which he did. Ordering Sean to place his hand against the wall and not move, the officer immediately handcuffed and frisked him. Sean asked, well, what was happening? And explained that he was a student at the law school just across the street and was waiting for the bus to go home. The cop ignored his explanation and continued to frisk him. And by then, approximately seven other police cars had arrived and blocked off the street to traffic. Students and professors from Sean's Law School began to form a crowd across the street, but no one made a move to assist him. He was humiliated. The police cursed him out, yelled at him to cooperate. He did, but he felt confused by what was going on. They repeatedly kicked at his ankles, forcing his legs further and further apart until he was spread eagle. They kept pushing his face against the wall and down toward his chest, yelling, telling him to stop resisting. He was frisked two more times and his wallet was taken. His school books and laptop were dumped out on the sidewalk. His grocery bags were emptied and Sean was restrained by three officers who held his handcuffed wrist together with the slack from the back of his shirt and pants to prevent him from running away. They questioned him roughly, showing no respect for him as a law-abiding citizen. When Sean again asked what was going on, he was told he fit the description of someone involved in a shooting, shooting a few blocks away. And just then, one of the officers' radios crackled, black male, five foot eight, blue button-down shirt, khaki tan dress pants, brown dress shoes, the description fits Sean exactly. 
having heard himself being described over the radio, he was convinced that he was going to jail. After 10 minutes of being forced to stand straddle, physically restrained and handcuffed in front of his peers and professors, another radio announcement let the officers know that the actual suspect had been apprehended elsewhere. Sean was uncuffed and told to have a seat. The cops who had been standing around turned to their, returned to their vehicles and drove off. The officer who made the initial stop remained and took down Sean's information for the police report. And he filled out the form, but he, as he attempted to make small talk with Sean, Sean wouldn't have it. Sean answered his questions politely, but otherwise remained silent. He felt mortified and was still afraid, but mostly angry at the lack of respect he had received and the clear racial profiling that had just taken place. During the commotion, a group of neighbors had congregated on an adjacent street corner behind a police car. And as the officer was writing down Sean's information, a neighbor came up and in front of Sean asked if Sean was the guy. The officer replied, no, it turned out to be somebody else. The neighbor, whispering within Sean's hearing, offered to follow Sean home to make sure. Officer, that won't be necessary. Sean later learned from local news that the actual suspect was the victim's college roommate who had been playing around when he accidentally discharged the gun and he was a white male. Sean realized that it was his neighbors who had called the police on him, furnished his description. They had heard that there was a shooting in the neighborhood and when they saw Sean, they concluded that this black male must be the suspect. Every day for three years, they had noticed him, avoiding eye contact as he walked by them on his way to and from law school. Now this incident of racial profiling then began not with the police, but with his own neighbors. Today, five years after this ordeal, Sean has completed law school and returned to Philadelphia and taken a position in a Center City law firm. Although he says that he has moved on from this experience, he comments, never does a day go by that I don't think about what happened back then. That incident was traumatic for me. And now I feel somewhat jaded. It, was, it has taken me a long time to get over what happened. The incident was a part of my education, though, as a young black man. And now I'm not so quick to trust white people. And the incident continues to color my view and my feelings of what is and what is not possible for a young black man. Nashawn's trauma and disillusionment is not the only consequence of this, you see, because this kind of reverberates, this kind of story reverberates to the community. And there are many others that I can repeat from people who've had these kinds of moments, as it were, acute disrespect based on, based on blackness. And in the book, the book is rife with these, these kinds of things. But I point out that this acute disrespect can happen to anybody with provisional status. What Sean had in that community was provisional status, something to prove, something to prove, you see. And if you're a minority, you got something to prove, you see. You can be white in a black environment and you've got something to prove, as it were, you see. Or you could be gay in a straight environment, you've got something to prove. 
And then when the ethnos sort of come together and get weary of acting all nice, they might let you have it. And that's the nigger moment, you see. And that's the new color line. This is the new color line, is what I'm saying. This is a major finding of this book, you see. No longer is it solid and clear. It happens when you least expect it. It's happened to me. <laughs> I mean, folks say, you live long enough as a black person, you will have a nigger moment, you see. You, you, you were guaranteed to have a nigger moment. I mean, basically, people try to put you back in your place. So see, the thing of it is, with this new day that we're looking at and trying to celebrate, we've had this major, major, major incorporation process. We've had affirmative action, you know, we've had incorporation, we've had the, black, the biggest black middle class in history. What this means is that these black people today who are so middle class and operating in the wider society encounter situations and circumstances every day where people are not used to seeing black people. And the many white people who are, are fine with this, fine with this, but there are some who just are not having it, if you know what I mean, have to be kind of brought along. And that's where the tension lies, if you follow what I'm saying. My daddy. <laughs> He came to visit me at Penn one day, and this is back, uh, back in 80, 85, you know, and he, he come for Thanksgiving, you know, and, you know, and uh, I show him around the, build the grounds and I show him this and that, you know, and uh, I show him my office, you know. That's where I worked at it, you know. <laughs> he looks around, you know, and we talk, and, you know, I show him all the little place. We get back home, we begin to listen to the blues and drink some beer and sit around waiting for the meal. And see, he's the kind of guy who, he passed away in, back, in, back in 88, but, but he's the kind of guy who we'd talk and then he, he'd be silent, not say something for a long time, but pick up and say something very powerful, you know. So we'd let this subject go and then we'd sit around drinking beer, listen to Muddy Waters, you know, something. And then he said to me, he said, he said, okay, so you teach at this white university. You got these, uh, he didn't say white colleagues, so you work with these white folks, you teach here. You got white students. Uh, you got a nice office. It's a beautiful place. But tell me one thing. I said, okay. He said, do they respect you? I mean, he's just curious. Because where he came from in the South, you know, in the caste system, where the color line was clear, uh, he knew that white folks did not respect black people. He just knew that. And people worked around that, but they knew that. And he was wondering about me. He said, now, do they respect you? <laughs> it took me back. I said, well, uh, well, Daddy, uh, some do, <laughs> and 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 I'm sure some don't. But but you know, Daddy, it, it's kind of hard to know which is which sometimes, if you follow me. So this is the problem, even right now today, 
it's hard to know which is which. For a lot of the black people who've been incorporated into these environments, if you follow what I'm saying, they know that there are decent white people. I mean, decent people who have your best interests. That are, they know that. But they also know there are people who are profoundly racist, who just don't like black people. And they, they know they work with these folks, but they don't always know who is who or which is which. And so, but at the same time, as you work in one of these places, you can't come out of some kind of ethnocentric bag, even though because of racial injury, black people have a proclivity towards that ethnocentrism. Um, but you can't behave that way and expect to get ahead in a corporation, so you have to kind of put on the gloss and, and try, to, try to get along but you don't always know who is who. And so at 5 o'clock, people just, boom, they're gone. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and these, these kinds of things came out in the interviews, is what I'm trying to say. These kinds of understandings came out in the interviews that I did with people and the observations I made. And so, uh, again, this, 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 this racial issue can rent the canopy, whether it's the workplace, or whether it's one of these settings that are so lovely, you know? It's that issue. But I dare say I want to underscore the fact that you don't have to be black and, and have this kind of thing happen, this acute disrespect based on your difference, if you know. Black people can feel it acutely because of this history, this powerful history of racial injury. But my point is that this is one of the things that rent the canopy, that rent the canopy. And this is one of the things that we as a society have to deal with in order to, to move forward. At the same time, I underscore the fact that this is, the canopy itself is a beautiful setting. It's a beautiful place in so many ways. A lot of that is, 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 is gloss, superficial. And that doesn't, that doesn't discredit it. It just means that it's, it's, it's on the surface, this, this, this good stuff going on oftentimes. And it doesn't always have to be on the surface. Sometimes it's rather deep. But there's this, this, this tendency to just gloss over these things that give us pain, if you will. But the moment is really the fault line that we've got to kind of attend to if we want to create this more uh, civil uh, society. And I'll stop there. Thank you.